Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the Sixer Sense Podcast, hosted by co-site experts, Lucas Johnson and Christopher Klein. I'm your host, Lucas Johnson, with my co-host here, Christopher Klein, our producer, Uriah Young, and a special guest, a reoccurring guest, Noah Levick of NBCS Philly. Noah, glad to have you back on. What's going on, man? It's been a while. Yeah, thanks so much to you guys uh, for having me back on. Happy to talk more Sixers. Most definitely, man. And we're just going to, no no small talk today. we got a full palette, plate of stuff that we got to just jump into. So, Chris, go ahead and take us away. Yeah, again, Noah, thanks for coming on. We're, we're super excited to have you. And uh, we're just going to jump into some quotes from the media slate from the past week. A lot of Sixers have been talking on Zoom to a lot of members in the media. We've gotten some good quotes. And we're going to jump right in with Joe Lambeed, who said, quote, I think we have the roster to win a championship. So, Noah, just right off the bat, do you agree? And what does Embiid specifically need to to do to lead this team to a title? Um, I, I think that's a bit optimistic at this stage. Uh, we heard something similar as well from Seth Curry today, that he does believe there's championship potential and they, they just have to make sure they're checking off, you know, all the boxes throughout the process. I, I think... Daryl Morey in this during this offseason was smart to leave a lot of flexibility in case it becomes apparent that the roster as currently constructed is not championship material. So they still have the you know the majority of their taxpayer mid-level exception um, and could perhaps sign an impactful player that way. I'm curious uh, whether this return to a 2017-18 ish roster uh, will be fruitful and whether Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid will make jumps this year. Um, I, I think I would lean toward that being unlikely at this stage that this is a, a team that's going to win a championship. Uh, I don't think they're currently like a top tier team up there with the Lakers or the Bucks. or, um, Right now, but um, perhaps they will surprise us. But th- that's my gut feel at this stage that there may be a rung down, but with the potential still to perhaps improve um, during the course of the season. So I'm going to agree with you there. No, I don't think that they are a championship 
a caliber team yet. <clears throat> I think their floor is probably a second round exit in the playoffs. I think their ceiling is an Eastern Conference championship, possibly, but more or less just an appearance in the Eastern Conference finals. This team, just like in 2017, this team lacks one very important thing, and that is a closer. Now, I don't I don't think any of us expect Tyrese Maxey to become that closer right away as a rookie. And it's becoming very clear that Ben Simmons doesn't want to be that closer. And while Joel Embiid is very efficient in crunch time, you can't he can only do so much because he doesn't handle the ball on the perimeter himself. So he can't get himself the ball. He has to be given the ball to be efficient. That being said, I think, you know, Maury talked about on a radio show about how he's saving his all some of his bullets. Like you said, the mid-level exception is the one there. And there are still some movable contracts. Danny Green can be moved. You find the right team. You find you could possibly, uh, it seems unlikely, but, you know, find a team desperate enough for, you know, an unhappy star, a LA like James Harden or maybe Victor Oladipo, you could possibly, you know, flip uh, Tobias Harris. Who knows? Um, but like, like in 2017, this team's lacking a closer, somebody that can create off the dribble. Like I said, it could be Shake, it could be Tyrese Maxey. I don't expect either one of them to make that leap this year, and I don't expect Ben to do it either. So I'm in the same boat. I, I agree with both of you. I think this is definitely not what Maury envisions as kind of a final iteration of this roster. Uh, like you said, Lucas, he has bullets left in the chamber that he hasn't used yet whether it's at the buyout market or at the trade deadline, I do think we're going to see more moves in the future. I think what Maury has really preached so far this offseason is just patience in seeing what they have under Doc Rivers before they, they try to take that next step. So I think that's really the plan at this point. And, but yeah, like you said, I, I think this is a team that can get to like the second round of the playoffs, maybe even the conference finals. I mean, they played, you know, Miami and Indiana and Boston pretty even in the standings uh, last season, and they've obviously gotten better. Uh, we'll see how, you know, incorporating a new system under such a constrained timeline affects them. But uh, I do agree that as currently constructed, this probably isn't a championship roster. Now we're going to move on to something that Ben Simmons said about his jumper. Um he basically said, quote, it's important to make shots, but it's more important to win games. That was, I believe, in reference to a question directly about his perimeter jumper, which we know he's been asked to talk about a lot in the past. He's been fairly reluctant to do so. Noah, do you think Simmons, how serious do you take that quote from Simmons? And, and what do you think about his, uh, his three-point shot going into the season? Well, yeah, last season... We heard from him at media day that he would shoot three pointers in open and that obviously did not materialize. So the way I took that um, is that he's not making a similar commitment and that therefore it wouldn't make much sense to expect him to be a regular or effective um, jump shooter. Uh, just quite frankly, um, he did, he did say that, he wants to do better as far as attacking the rim, as far as drawing more free throws. And to his credit, he's made small strides um, on both those fronts. 
you know, his, his free throw rate has gone up each season in his NBA career. His free throw percentage has gone up a little bit. I mean, 62% is not good, but it has gone up uh, during the course of his career. So I think realistically, it, you would hope to see continued improvements as far as getting to the rim, uh, being efficient around the rim, drawing more fouls, making free throws. Uh, all those kind of subcategories that revolve around just being aggressive um, and being productive in ways that don't involve shooting jump shots. No, you brought up an interesting quote from last off, you know, preseason training camp about him making the promise of shooting more three pointers, and then he just doesn't. And it seems very clear from what Doc Rivers has said that he's not, he doesn't care about the jump shots, Ben shooting. But I think at the end of the day, to echo what Chris has said in the past, Ben Simmons is who he is. And if he doesn't want to take him, he's not going to take him. Now, whether is that going to lead to winning or not, that's probably, it's probably fair to say that unless he's willing to take those, it's probably not going to, the Sixers don't have a real shot about winning a championship with him and Joel being the number one and two on the team. And if, if they want to have a shot, then I think we definitely need to see Ben do that, but I think we're going to see Ben do what Ben wants in terms of his jump shot because it doesn't seem like it concerns Doc Rivers that much. So I think in that regard, we're just going to not. I don't think we're going to see much progress in him being aggressive even in the mid-range, but especially from the three-point line. I would just quickly say, though, mid-range, unless you're, unless you're Seth Curry, is not an efficient shot in the NBA. I'm sure that's like a point that uh, an analytically inclined guy like Daryl Moore would agree on. And mm-hmm. especially if you're Ben Simmons, who I think shot four for 30 on um, two-pointers from 10 feet and out, it, it's, it's very unlikely that mid, uh, the mid-range game is something that he should be regularly incorporating any time in the near future. So uh, ultimately for him, I, I think the question, you know, under Brett Brown was, okay, well, is he at least going to like shoot open threes? Um, so, yeah, I guess that's, that's still a lingering question. Um, but I would remain, you know, especially skeptical of the notion of him ever in, the, in a near future becoming a good mid range player. So that's just my thought there. That's fair. And to be, but to counter your point there, now I want to bring up the fact that Daryl Morey isn't married to that either because he definitely let Westbrook last year attack from the mid range. Now, granted, Westbrook's not a good three point shooter and is pretty efficient in the mid range, but, and I know Ben isn't, the stats say it, but, you know, the willingness to shoot is, I guess, is the biggest problem with Ben. He's not. I don't know if it's a willingness or just not wanting to or mental yips or whatever it is, but that's it's it's stopping him from being the next LeBron James, as Stephen A. Smith would say. Yeah, with the with the willingness, I think something that's relevant now under Doc Rivers is he he has this desire to run a lot more pick and roll. And Mm -hmm. of course, seen in the past with Ben Simmons, it's very difficult to run conventional uh, pick and rolls 
if the defense, you know, goes under any, every single time and packs the pain and just doesn't respect the threat of a jump shot. So, yeah, absolutely. If, if he could somewhat change that, um, you would figure that would be impactful for the Sixers offense. Um, so we'll, we'll see if we'll see if that ever happens. Yeah. To piggyback off, and I know we're getting stuck on this for a while, but I, I feel like this is important. When Ben and Joel first started running the, I, I guess you call them D pick and rolls or the dig pick and rolls, where you run it on the on the on the uh, block. When they ran it against the Clippers and Doc Rivers, that's what I'm expecting to see. When when Doc said we're going to run pick and rolls, including Ben and Joel, I think we're going to see that type of you know dig pick and roll on a regular basis. Yeah, I think they call it yes, not pick and roll. Yeah, there there were. I mean, to Brett Brown's credit, it's something he tried, and I think they had mixed results. Uh, I remember, I think the game against the Knicks, they ran it maybe two or three times. You know, it, it's it's successful, I think, often, and that it forces the defense to switch or to make a difficult decision in a tight space. But then the uh, downside of that is, of course, is just there's very little space for Ben Simmons to operate and make a decision. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I think I agree with you. I think we'll probably see uh, some more of that snug pick and roll under under Doc Rivers. Yeah, Especially with more spacing this year, too. I agree. I agree with both of you. I, Doc Rivers basically said he he didn't care about Ben's jumper, and I'm I'm pretty much in the same boat. I just don't think it's like Lucas said. He is who he is. I think we kind of are comfortable and aware of who Ben is at this point. And like he does so much else on the floor. Uh, would it be beneficial for him to maybe space out to the corner and take a few open threes every game? Of course, I think that's something he should work on. But Rivers mentioned not clouding his head, not making him overthink things, and I, I think. Personally, I think that's kind of the right the right direction to go at this point. And moving on to another thing that Doc said about Ben with regard to his position and potentially playing point guard, he said, quote, is Ben a point guard? Honestly, I don't know yet. Uh, ben went on to say that he doesn't view himself, you know, on the one, two, three, four, five positional spectrum, that he is just a basketball player and that he, he can play anywhere. Noah, do you think, Doc should play Ben as more of a traditional point guard, as we saw earlier on in the Brett Brown tenure, or should he play more forward, off ball, maybe sort of like we saw in the bubble before his injury? Yeah, while he while he wouldn't commit to calling him a point guard, I did think it was notable that he praised his decision making. He said he's you know great at driving downhill, great at kicking out the shooter. So he praised a lot of Ben Simmons's point guard qualities, if you will. Um, yeah, I mean, something that I did think was interesting for me was the numbers indicated in the second half of the season that Simmons did really well, um, on elbow touches and on, 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 and on post touches, um, much better, you know, than the first half of the season. So I did think we saw some promise there. Of course, Brett Brown also explored Simmons, uh, as a rolling threat and he certainly has potential, um, you know, being used that way. Uh, my sense is he's going to be closer to a point guard to start this season, uh, especially with this shooting around him. I think that's a lot more attractive because if defenses do pack the paint, they're going to pay for that if they leave someone like Seth Curry or Danny Green. 
so yeah, I, I think perhaps we see some lineups like we saw with uh, Shake and Ben on the floor at the same time, and Ben is more of the transition point guard, and Shake is more of the half court point guard, perhaps. But my uh, feel at this stage is that we see Ben Simmons used as uh, something that looks like a point guard, you know, even if Doc Rivers um, and Simmons aren't willing to call him that. So I did an article about a week or so ago, I think, Chris, and it was covering based that I think that we're going to, based on the offseason moves, that Ben Simmons has no choice but to be the point guard. There isn't another pure point guard on this roster right now. Not even one of, like, TJ McConnell or even Howell Nettles Elk, if you look at it. Because right now, it's a point backup point guard by committee. You have Tyrese Maxey, who was a combo guard, because he played with Emmanuel quickly at uh, Kentucky last year. Both of them are kind of combo guards there. So Maxey's not going to jump right in and be the starting point guard of the team. We all expect him to come off the bench. Then you have Seth Curry, who, yeah, has played some point guard in his in the past and has yeah yeah he has some dribbling skills and he can create off the pick and roll a little bit but he's much more much more of an off guard you know he he's much more deadly as a you know spot up three point shooter and then you have Shake Milton I remember I think one of the first sec I think it was the second podcast that we've had Noah on and Noah you can correct me if I'm wrong here but we had a long discussion about how bad Jake Milton looked as a point guard in summer league. Now, granted, he made a lot, a lot of progress, but I think the bubble showed us that Jake Milton's not a pure point guard either. And we all kind of expect Curry to get that starting nod over Milton at this point, based off of Doc Rivers' comments. I think we can all see Jake Milton being that sixth man, having that freedom in the second unit. So I think in that regard, Doc Rivers doesn't have a choice but to treat him as a point guard based off the personnel that we have on the roster. That's where I'm at with this. I tend to agree. I think we have maybe a bit more ball handling on this roster than, than last season with Curry, who you mentioned Lucas can can handle a little bit, and Maxi if he does end up getting playing time. But I, I, I mean, I tend, I don't think it's terribly important at this point to really pigeonhole Ben into a specific position. Like, he's just going to have the ball in his hands a lot because that's where he's at his best and that's how he impacts the game most. Uh, sometimes that's going to be out in transition. Sometimes that's going to be in the half court with a spaced floor. And then other times, you know, you're going to move him off ball and have him run, you know, screen for Tyrese Maxey, whoever it is, running point. But I, I think we'll see more different looks under Doc Rivers. I think the offense in general is just going to function a lot differently than it did under Brett Brown. But at the end of the, end of the day, you know, it, it's Ben Simmons. And you, you put the ball in his hands as often as you can because that's just – that's how you win basketball games. For sure, for sure. But we're going to switch gears now from taking quotes to lamenting about how Sixers fans got robbed for this upcoming Christmas Day showing because for the first time in a couple years, the Sixers are not going to be nationally televised. Noah, why do you think the Sixers were snubbed from a Nash, uh, Christmas Day uh, sh- showing? Yeah, I mean, in full transparency... I've never been someone who cares a ton about the schedule release or the TV or all of that. I, I did think the 
experience uh, of the Christmas Day game last year against the Bucks was was cool. It was a it was a big deal. I'm sure it was exciting for a lot of fans. Uh, I think ultimately it probably just boils down to expectations were really high for last year's team and they failed to meet them. And now perhaps in the national consciousness, there's understandable um, caution there, you know, of believing it uh, when they see it with this team and with this core of Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. So, yeah, I think if the Sixers, if the Sixers start strong, um, I'm sure a lot more national folks will start paying attention. But Tobias Harris, like they have something to prove. They have a chip on their shoulder uh, because because they failed last season. So, um, yeah, I didn't closely analyze all the Christmas games or whatever. I'm sure you could make a case for the Sixers being a decent matchup and they do have star power um, and they do have some exciting young players, but I don't know for me personally, I, I you know, I'm not sure I would, I would call it a snub just for the reasons uh, I just said. So the Christmas day schedule goes like this at 12 PM. You have the Pelicans versus the heat Two thirty: warriors versus bucks, 5 PM nets versus Celtics, 8 PM game Mavs versus Lakers. And then the 1030 game is Clippers versus Nuggets. So that just should give everyone an idea of, okay, all right, who who is basically taking a slot from the Sixers, who have been playing on Christmas Day, I think, the past three three or four seasons. Those sound like pretty good games to me. I guess I guess maybe one point of potential objection would be the Pelicans, just since you know, they're not a, they're not an elite team, but I think what watching Zion on Christmas sounds pretty fun to me. So I think those are all pretty good games uh, personally. Yeah. Yeah. I, I tend to agree. I don't really view this as a snub. Like Philly was the sixth seed in the East and they got swept in the first round and they just weren't very fun to watch last season. Like it, it was not a good product for the most part. Obviously that could change this year with new pieces and more shooters. It, it should look better, but like, I don't know if we should really be calling it a snub, like you said, Noah. Uh, like the Pelicans, even like when Zion was healthy and on the floor last season, they they were really quite good. And they were fun to watch, and they're the NBA has invested a lot in Zion in terms of marketing. So I, I really don't have a ton of complaints there. I, I think it's fair. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't think this has to do with much as the Sixers as it does like these other young teams coming around. You. The Warriors are still going to be attractive as long as they have Curry. You know, you still have, you know, the Heat made it to the NBA Finals. You have the Lakers, of course. You have the Bucks, of course. You know, you have all these big, you know, Clippers, Nuggets. And then you got the young and upcoming teams like the like the Pelicans. And, um, gosh, who's the other team that I was thinking of? You're right. Who's the other young? Mavericks. Yeah, the Mavericks. So... I, I think this has less to do about the Sixers and just more about the do the growing talent uh, around the NBA. And the fact is that outside, like outside of Boston, I don't see see there being like a marquee matchup for the Sixers on Christmas Day. So, which don't get me wrong, everybody loves to see a Sixers Celtics game, but still. So, I think this has more to do with the other teams and. I, I guess that you guys kind of already answered my next question here is that, you know, so far in the first half of the schedule, the Sixers only have nine nationally televised games. 
Last year they were in double digits. Um, so is, do you think the Sixers' popularity is in, in peril, or do you think it's just has more to do with other other teams being having more interesting uh, stories? Uh, not stories, but you guys get what I say, like back stories to backgrounds, uh, plots, and I'm talking about NBA teams like they're a script, but you guys get what I'm saying here. Yeah, yeah I'd say, like you're alluding to, probably a little bit of both. Um, I think with the Sixers, probably from a neutral perspective, often what makes it interesting is are these uh, beefs that you know Joel Embiid has. So I'm sure that opening night game against Russell Westbrook uh, will be really intriguing, and there could be some tension there. And we all remember what happened uh, the last time Embiid and Westbrook squared off. So, like a game like that, um, I'm sure you know from a national perspective. Um, you know, has some appeal. Uh, but yeah, I mean, nine nationally televised games, if they want to see that as a sign of disrespect, fair enough. But um, I, I think it's also fair enough to to view them as not, you know, one of the most attractive teams in the NBA until they prove that they are. Yeah, again, same feelings here. I mean, it's always it's typically good for a team to view themselves as disrespected in some way. I think that's good motivation. And if Philly feels that way, it could be beneficial. But like we have on on the agenda here that they have as many national TV games as the Suns. Like Chris Paul led OKC to a higher seed than Philly last year in the West. I don't think that's necessarily disrespectful. Like the Suns might be a better team, possibly. So, you know, it's just they have to prove it and they have to prove that they're in that upper echelon of the Eastern Conference before before we can really complain, I think, about national TV slates. Yeah, no, I think so. I, you bring up an interesting fact that they have to prove themselves. We talk about one bad season with terrible roster construction, and now the team has to reprove itself. And while it's not necessarily fair, it's, it's a fact, and it's going to be interesting, like you said, chip on their shoulder is going to be... I know we all know what Joel and B can do with a chip on his shoulder, but we haven't really seen Ben with one, so it's going to be interesting how he responds to that this year. Yeah, I mean, we haven't seen a Sixers team with a genuine shot at the championship that didn't have Jimmy Butler on it yet. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, with with it just being Joe and Ben at the top, they still really haven't proven themselves in the playoffs. So, mm-hmm. I, I I think it's just a matter of. And until that happens, they're they're not going to get that that top level treatment. And moving on, we're going to talk some more quotes now, and we're going to go into what Daryl Morey has had to say about the team. And most specifically, we're going to start on Shake Milton, who, as we mentioned earlier, seems to be trending towards that sixth man role, that Lou Williams, Jamal Crawford type in Doc Rivers' system. Um, Morey had to say about Shake, "quote I think the league hasn't caught up to how good Shake can be." It was one of the first things Doc and I spoke about after I joined. We are excited to see what he can do this year. Noah, what does it mean for Shake that he's held in such high regard by these these people at the top of the decision-making ladder in Philadelphia? And do you expect him to flourish even more this season under new leadership and with a new role? Yeah, yeah. High praise from both Maury and Rivers for Shake. For me, what's always stood out about Shake Milton... Of the basketball talents is 
a poise. He's really unflappable. And the only exception I can really think of there is that first post-bubble game, I think, against the Pacers, where he was bothered a little bit by TJ McConnell pressuring him in the backcourt, and he had uh, that little altercation on the sidelines with Joel Embiid. But that really stands out as an exception with him. Uh, so I think, like, Time and again, you know, you look back at his first start against the Lakers. Um, you look at him starting in a playoff series and acquitting himself reasonably well for, a, you know, a player who was on a team that was swept. Uh, you just look pretty much at every significant moment throughout his young career, and he hasn't looked overwhelmed. It hasn't looked beyond him. Uh, so I would expect, I, I see no reason why that won't continue in a new regime and in a new role. I'm sure it might be a bit of an adjustment. We heard from Doc Rivers that he he wants Milton to play more free, and he has a more of a green light. And that might be a bit of an adjustment here, um, you know, for a player, as Lucas said, who isn't a conventional primary ball handler. There will probably be some more shot creation responsibilities. So I could see that being a challenge, perhaps of having to create his own looks a little more and certainly having to run more pick and rolls. Um, so yeah, I'm, I don't think that it necessarily will be this, um, you know, massive, incredible success and he wins six man of the year or something crazy like that. But I would expect him to, to do pretty well and to continue making strides uh, as he has kind of at every step of the way here. Um, and it is encouraging. He mentioned, he gained like a, a huge amount of muscle. I think it was about like 15 pounds of muscle, um, which which should help as far as driving to the hoop, absorbing contact, um, dealing with physicality, um, and you know that that has been an issue for him at times. So I think uh, the added weight will will help him there, and I think he can do decently as a six man for this team. Again, don't expect him to like beat Jamal Crawford or Lou Williams right off the bat, but. I think he can um, do pretty well in that role would be my expectation. Well, I think it's interesting that Dar- that both Daryl Morey and, and Doc Rivers seem to have this affection for Shake Milton. I think we all as a fan base got really excited about Shake. I think me and Chris both acknowledged that sometimes we got a little bit too ahead of ourselves sometimes because we have to remember that last season he was literally in his second year but I think you're right on the spot that I think we will see him being that pri- that sixth man. Now, I don't, like you said, don't expect him to be Lou Williams, Jamal Crawford this season. But it could happen within the next two or three years. I, I think that's a real, I, I wouldn't doubt it. Honestly, I think like if we get like thir- 12 to 14 points a game from Milton off the bench this year, that's like a win for the Sixers for sure. And... I think that that will go a long way and it'll be interesting. Cause I, I still feel like the best bet for the Sixers to have like solid playmaking in the second unit would be maxi at the point guard. But I, I definitely think that Milton would help help maxi transition into a full NBA point guard. And I think to, by taking off some of the, the playmaking burden, but I think we're going to see a like I think we're going to see some with the body mass increase I think we're going to see better defense from him too. So yeah. that's yeah. that's something I think that Crawford nor Lou Williams ever could do 
and something that that Milton can do is be a more complete six man instead of just a spark plug off the bench. Definitely, yeah. Just a quick note there, um, because I was curious. I looked up like Shake Milton in lineups uh, without Ben Simmons last year, and unsurprisingly, they were like abysmal defensively. They were in the bottom one percent in terms of uh, defensive rating. Um, which you know can't which can happen if if he's going to be playing uh significant minutes kind of as a primarily ball handler when Ben Simmons sits perhaps this year um so yeah I'm I'm not necessarily optimistic that he gains weight and he focuses on his defense and he suddenly becomes like an above average defensive player uh but if he's adequate defensively um mm-hmm. You know Agreed. that that'll that'll be enough. So I think that, he has length for it. So yeah, it, sh- it should be possible. Good length. Um, he's. I think he's a smart player. Um, so yeah, I think it's it's possible for him to be adequate. Um, I wouldn't expect more than that defensively this year. Um, but I think that's the bar that they're hoping he meets. And yet, Doc Rivers mentioned I'm going to hold him more accountable than I held guys like um, you know Jamal Crawford defensively. Um, basically shake you know he he needs to he needs to hold his own defensively in order to uh retain an important role on the team yeah mm-hmm. well i think the difference between shake and those guys is that those guys were in the prime of their careers or at the end of the prime of their careers when they came into doc rivers's you know team whereas shake's still a very young player so i think doc rivers might be able to be a little bit more stern on the defensive end with a guy like him versus you know veterans that were already set in their ways yeah yeah Yeah. and i I mean i think it is important to draw the distinction like lou will and jamal crawford are two of the craftiest like ball handlers and isolation Mm -hmm. scorers in recent memory and that's just not Mm -hmm. shake's game he's a very different player um but i i do think more freedom will will help him it'll at least his scoring numbers should probably go up i think he'll have plenty of opportunities to to do that i think pick and rolls will help him quite a bit because he, he can't really get separation too well um, in isolation by himself. So putting screens there, getting him downhill, I think that'll help him quite a bit. But I, I do think defense, like you said, no, is going to be really important. He's probably not going to be a good defender, but, I mean, he's like 6'6", has a 7-foot wingspan. Like you said, he's a very high IQ player. So there is potential there. He has some tools, and I, I think that's something Doc and, and the coaching staff are really going to focus on. And transitioning to what Maury, Daryl Morey had to say on social media there was a tweet thread going around out there about lineup combinations that people were excited to see someone mentioned the assumed Sixers starting lineup of Curry, Green, Harris, Simmons and Embiid. Maury tweeted out that he was also excited to see that group. So Noah how would you maybe paint a picture of what this lineup is going to look like offensively and defensively in comparison to what we saw with, with last year's group? Uh, it's, it's a pretty good lineup, yeah, on paper anyway. Yeah, we talked about Ben Simmons' role, you know, regardless of if we're calling him a point guard, he's, he's the point guard in that lineup. Seth Curry is a downgrade from Josh Richardson defensively, but I think is an upgrade in multiple ways offensively. He's obviously an elite catch and shoot player, like literally the best in the league last year, you know, over 48%. 
but he's also a really good mid-range shooter, and uh, his numbers were also really excellent, uh, you know, on dribble handoffs, you know, in limited pick-and-roll opportunities, uh, just a really versatile offensive player who, uh, yeah, he said he, he thinks he's going to be a perfect match with Ben Simmons, and I think there's a lot of reason to, um, you know, think that that, that 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 duo will be really good together. Uh, Danny Green, yeah, I think, you know, had a down year with his shooting uh, on the Lakers. Uh, so I'm sure the Sixers would love if he's at his career mark of 40% from three. But even if he's high 30s and a dependable catch and shoot guy uh, who can hit spot up threes, who can be a guy that Simmons can kick out to on the fast break, that would be great. Uh, and Danny Green has always been someone who creates turnovers. You know, he's diminished defensively, um, you know, at, on this back half of his career, but continues to grade out well as far as his, his steal rates and his block rates. And that's something that the Sixers would hope spurs their transition offense. Uh, so, yeah, and then Tobias Harris, uh, you know, we, I'm sure, you know, it's been talked about ad nauseum, the fact that, he had his best stretch of his career with Doc Rivers on the Clippers, and now uh, Rivers wants him to be a quicker decision player. He wants him to, you know, uh, exploit mismatches against fours who don't have um, the agility to stay in front of him. And I think there's reason to be encouraged there um, with with Tobias. Um, and then the question is, will he? return to his Clippers form as far as his three-point shooting, Um, you know, and I I guess the vision of what this team looks like when it's gelling and everything works as, as exactly as envisioned is that, yeah, Tobias is better three-point shooter because he's getting a lot of wide open looks again on those uh, kickouts from Ben Simmons. And just as a result of this better team spacing. And then we all, we know all about Joel Embiid and um, I'm sure I, you know, sure we'll touch more on him later but yeah uh, a lot of pieces to like in that lineup you know similarly constructed as we mentioned before to the 2017-18 team just in terms of prioritizing shooting around two uh star big players so yeah i'm i'm excited as well to to see what they look like i think we we just have to be aware that there is very limited time because of these covid related restrictions for them to practice together as a team. And we don't know how quickly everything's going to click. Um, but the idea of what it looks like when it does click um, could be pretty fun. Yeah. So let me start out defensively here. I think Simmons is guarding the best offensive player uh, on the perimeter, period. You know, I don't think that changes uh, from Brown to Doc Rivers. Whether it be the point guard, shooting guard, small forward, even power forward, depending on certain matchups. But I think for the most part, we can see Tobias on power forwards. Um, Danny Green's going to get the second best. Seth Curry's probably either going to get the weaker of the two point guard or shooting guard, just based off of you know the fact that he's like what six two. So, you know, we'll see what happens there. But I think overall, we're going to see. Defensively, I, I mean, teams are going to attack Seth Curry. That's going to be that's it's going to happen, especially in the postseason. But we saw in the postseason that even though he was taken advantage of, sometimes it's not like he just rolled over or anything. He definitely put up a fight defensively in the postseason with the Mavericks. 
offensively, it's going to be interesting because, you know, we're definitely going to see some more pick and rolls with Ben and Joel and then probably separate as with as well as Tobias Harris, I would imagine. So the person running those pick and rolls is going to be interesting. It's probably going to be a combination of Seth, uh, Milton, and Maxie, assuming that he's in the lineup, which I think he should be. But we'll uh, outside of that, we're going to see Ben Simmons attacking the paint a lot. He's going to be kicking out. Um, I think it's interesting how we're going to see Joel being used because the only comparison player that I can think of that even closely mimics Joel's skills is Kevin Garnett that used to play for Doc Rivers. And KG was much more of a mid-range shooter, and that's what Joel used to do back during his rookie year. He loved doing the mid-range jumpers. And we saw in the bubble that Joel started to work on that fadeaway jumper, which didn't look half bad in the bubble. I'm, we can assume that he worked on it more this offseason. And uh, while, you know, Joel should still be getting paint touches, I wouldn't be surprised if he reverted a little bit more back to his jump shots, uh, especially when he does pick and rolls, pick and pops with Ben. But we'll see what happens there for sure with Joel. Green's going to be the spot-up shooter. Um Assuming that he can regain part of his shooting form, I think we'll be fine. And if not, I'm sure Darren Morey can flip him for an actual shooter if they need be, if need be, shooter and or point guard. But I think offensively we're going to see, like you said, Noah, Tobias is going to be quick decision-making, I think. And part of the reason I think his three-point shooting has gone down is that he's been used, dribbling, like Doc Rivers said, too much and he's not a dribbler. He doesn't create. He he makes quick decisions, and that's where he thrived with the Clippers, and I think we're going to see more of that this season as well. So this time around, Noah, you we gave you the option to bring up a couple different things. So, Noah, do you want to go ahead and talk about the uh, assistant coaches for us? Sure thing, yeah. So we this is a, a really stacked assistant coaching staff just wanted to highlight a couple of guys who it sounds like are really influential um, for this team in these early days of training camp, uh, one of them being Dave Yeager. So we actually heard from Doc Rivers today, which was their first team practice, that he gave Dave Yeager a lot of control over the offense. Um, and I think something and considers him like a brilliant offensive mind and wants to mesh some of his offensive schemes and actions with Rivers' own offensive system uh, and, and liked a lot of what Jaeger ran, um, you know, in his previous head coaching stops. Uh, something I think is interesting with Dave Jaeger and, and Doc Rivers is this plan to increase the team's pace. Uh, so Jaeger with the Kings in 2018-19 had them playing this up-tempo style around De'Aaron Fox, who really is is one of the only players in the NBA with comparable open floor speed to Ben Simmons. And the Kings were third in pace and um, a much improved team that season. Uh, something that I, that I think is interesting with this initiative, uh, both to play faster and then also, as we've talked about, to run more pick and rolls, is that neither of those, um, neither of those concepts seems to really play in the favor of Joel Embiid. So we don't think of Joel Embiid as a big man who sprints up and down the floor and at least in the early years of his career, uh, screening and rolling has not been a strength of his. So I actually asked Embiid about that um, a couple days ago and I thought he had an interesting answer that was 
essentially he thinks that they can mix that with his half-court strengths and that both in the fourth quarters of games and just in the playoffs that he can take over um, as a half-court post-up player, but that he also thinks the up-tempo, pick-and-roll style that Rivers and Jaeger want to implement is something that can be effective, just perhaps not in those end of game uh, or playoff settings. So I thought that was a really interesting answer. I, I think uh, we'll see if we'll see if he's right. Um, but I'm really curious to see how they do this balancing act with uh, the way the new coaching staff wants to play while still also making sure that, you know, their all-star center who's an awesome post player uh, is allowed to dominate down low. So Curious what you guys think of of that idea. Well, it's not like the, this is the first time that Eagles uh, dealt with a dominant big man back. And during his days with the Memphis Grizzlies, he had Marcus All and Zach Randolph. Granted, towards the end of their primes, but he had them, and he made that system work. Uh, I think that was that the year that Marcus All started shooting three pointers, or was that the year following with with um, Coach Fitz, uh, Fizdale. I think it was Coach Fizdale. But the point still stands that he can make it work with big men. We've seen it in the past with Jaeger. Granted, I know the Memphis teams were a little bit slower than the Sacramento teams, but it, it, it's possible for Jaeger to work around with his big men. That being said, um, it's going to be interesting because I definitely, uh, Joel Embiid is not a tr- the modern big man in the sense of pick it, setting screens, picking rolls. He's not. He's not a strong roller. He's not a strong finisher in the pick and rolls, which is really kind of interesting, all, all things considered. But he's kind of, for Joel Embiid's strength, he's not, he doesn't have a lot of lift on his, when he jumps. So that, I guess that's probably part of the reason why he's not a, you know, super strong finisher in the pick and rolls. And, you know, it, it almost looks half the time, and correct me if I'm wrong guys but it looks like half the time he's almost avoiding the contact in the pick and roll which is so weird considering the amount of times that he gets to the paint i mean gets to the free throw line but maybe it's more of a self-protection type of uh deal but i i, I know which quote you're talking about no with doc rivers talking about jaeger and he said he likes having former head coaches because they're much more confident and that he wants the players to listen to jaeger at the same level that the, they listen to him referring to doc rivers about the offense so in terms of playing pace this is perfectly this plays to ben simmons strengths we're gonna have if joel Embiid's gonna play more than 30 minutes a game he's going to have to be in shape and that's the big thing that we're gonna see this season now so far from the first practice doc Rivers said uh, you know joel didn't have to take that many breaks so that's good but we have to see it for a full season. This isn't the first time Joel Embiid's coming to training camp in good shape. It's when that first initial, you know, injury, you know, it doesn't have to be a big injury, but it keeps him out for two or three games. And then he comes back in and he's completely out of shape. And that's not, you know, that's just part of his body, you know, type and how he, how his body responds to not, you know, being active for a few days, you know, a few days to a week. So we're going to have to see Joel, if he's going to average, if they're going to play that type of pace, he 
and him averaging over 30 minutes a game, he's going to have to be in shape for the full season. And that's what, what, what I'm going to be looking for. Because if not, you can play du- you can play Joel 28 minutes a game and then Dwight, you know, 20 minutes a game. Dwight's, you know, not in his physical prime, but can surely play 20 minutes a game at a fast pace. I think that's still totally possible. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. I think it's going to be a balancing act with Joe. He's definitely not that up-tempo, run-the-floor center, and I don't think he really wants to play that way. But obviously, Jaeger and River's style seems pretty geared towards Ben, and I think Ben's going to have a lot of fun playing that way. I think Ben with shooters with Seth, Danny Green, Shake, guys like that who can space the floor and running. I mean, I think those are going to be really effective moments and really effective uh, stretches of play and uh, I think as far as Dwight I think that's really how they're going to get the most out of him is having him run the floor with Ben because those lineups in the half court where it's say Ben, Shooters, and Dwight are still going to be a little bit weird because neither Ben nor Dwight really do anything outside of the paint and I, I think that's going to be a really interesting fit for, for Doc to see how that works. So I, I think upping the pace, and especially when those two are on the floor together, is really going to be how how they get the most out of the, these groups. Um, yeah, and then so the, the second um, just point I wanted to see your guys' thoughts on was, you know, what we might see change defensively. So uh, Doc, you know, ha- has brought on Dan Burke, the longtime Pacers assistant, to be his defensive coordinator. I'm sure we'll learn more details about exactly what the Sixers scheme looks like, um, but from what I could gather and saw from the Pacers, uh, they were similar to the Sixers in some ways, at least in terms of favoring drop coverage in the pick and roll and not favoring switches very much. Um so I, I'm wondering whether you guys think that this team has the personnel to switch a decent amount in the pick and roll um, and just how you think um, Dan Burke and Rivers um, might be wise to change things under this new regime. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely don't think this is the perfect group as far as switching goes I mean obviously Danny Green and Ben Simmons can can do quite a bit but you know you have guys like Tobias and Seth Curry who who when they're caught up in switches maybe aren't um, in an advantageous position so I, I do think we're going to see more of that drop coverage stuff it, it, it has hurt the pick Sixers a lot in the past when they've played teams like Boston and Brooklyn with a lot of you know high powered pull up shooters at the point guard, you know, Kimball Walker, Spencer Dinwiddie, Kyrie, guys like that. So I do think they'll have to adjust somewhat because there were very clear limitations when, when this team was under Brett Brown and Jaime Udoka, Udoka, Udoka um, last season. But generally speaking, Burke, like you said, spent 20 years with the Pacers. He, he's very well respected, has been around the league for a long time. So I, I, I do think they're going to and we just fine on that end because at the end of the day, you know, Embiid and Simmons are both two of the best defenders quite possibly in the league. Mm-hmm. Joe by himself almost guarantees you, you know, a, a defense in the top half of the league. Ben was fourth, I believe, in defensive player of the year voting. Like at the correct. end of the day, it, it's pretty hard not to have a good good defensive team with this group. So 
I, I think they'll be pretty good there. So I think what we're going to see, like you said, Chris, you, Seth Curry, Tobias Harris are not good defenders, but I'm not focusing on them. I am focusing who's on the bench because Tyrese Maxey in college, he was able to hold his own at the point guard position, combo guard position. He's a nice, strong defender at that size. You have Matisse Thibel, who is one of the most, inter, you know, interruptive defenders in the NBA and is bound to get better on his one-on-one defense. In turn, uh, Dwight Howard, still one of the better interior defenders in the NBA, averaged over a block a game and under 20 minutes a game last season, I believe. It was like 1.1 in like 17 minutes. That's pretty good. Um, Like you said, Joel Embiid's one of the best defensive centers, and when engaged, one of the best NBA defenders, period, was second in the, uh, you know, voting two previous years before this past one then got fourth and is the most versatile defender danny green was the player that three and d was coined after and the d is still very much there even if he struggled offensively last year i think it's fair to say he he probably he, he st- held his own defensively no problem he's still above average defender even though he's starting to get a little bit older uh, i you know so in terms of switching, I don't expect it too much with the starting unit. It might be a little bit more capable of doing it in the second unit, but in terms, uh, you know, Joel B, you don't want him out of the paint because you don't want to risk foul trouble, and, you know, that just doesn't make sense. Ben can play all five positions. I think it just depends, but I wouldn't. I think their best bet is to continue the drop co- coverage just based off of the personnel that they have available right now defensively especially in the starting five yeah and i i will differ from you lucas a bit with regard to the second unit i'm i'm a bit worried about the bench right now because really? we, we can talk about maxi all we want but he's only six three he's a rookie traditionally rookies aren't that great defensively he's missing time in training camp as we're about to get to this and, and with a shortened training camp, a compressed schedule, there's a very good chance that he's just not ready to play right away. So there's a good chance he's not even in the rotation. Then you got guys like Shake and Furkan and Ferguson who just aren't very good defensively. Howard got played off the floor in certain matchups in the postseason. So I I don't know if the bench is really gonna be something the Sixers can rely on for defense. I definitely think there are holes there. Uh so I, I really think it, it's going to be up to Joe and Ben to be on the floor as, as much as possible, kind of plugging those holes. So I want to counter that point. The only matchup that I remember, Joel, I mean, Howard had to be run off the floor is when they played against Houston in the second round and Houston went micro ball, which you don't expect Dwight to be able to defend on the perimeter anyway, especially against guys like P.J. Tucker or Robert Covington. That's not going to happen. But that being said, uh, that we're not going to see a lot of guys being able to play Dwight off. Like, that's not going to be a regular occurrence. That being said, yes, Forcom, we all know, is a terrible defender. The Boston series proved that. I think you're underselling Ferguson a little bit. Yes, he's a little wiry, but he is, he is long and athletic and can definitely hold his own defensively. Offensively is why he didn't play as much as he used to last year. Um, Shake. Hopefully that added muscle will help. We won't know until the season. I'll give you that one. But Maxi, 
I, you know, we'll see what happens. I, you, you might be right about him not being in the rotation to start off with, but even if you just have Dwight and Matisse to anchor that second unit, that's not a bad second unit. And who knows, maybe Doc goes with Scott over Korkmaz because Scott's a little bit better defensively. Although his shot arsenal is not nearly as, you know, deep as Korkmaz's. But, you know, if you have Shake, do you really need Korkmaz's, you know, scoring as much, you know, if Shake really takes that next step as a six man mm-hmm. this year, you know, how much do you need Korkmaz's, you know, diversity of shots versus, you know, Scott's, you know, grittier defense. So I think you got to pick and choose your poison there, but between those two, but, you know, who knows what could happen for sure. Um, or it could be Justin Anderson. Who knows, Chris? Justin Anderson could make a could make a splash if that three point shooting holds up. But we'll 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 have to wait and see defensively in the second unit. I think there is a lot of questions to see who's going to be in that rotation, who won't. I think the only set two are probably the only set three is Dwight, Matisse, and Shake. Everybody else, nine through you know, the ninth man plus could be interchanged i think honestly with anybody so we'll see what happens yeah just just one number i'll be tracking uh defensively this year is three-point shots um allowed by the sixers so i was doing some digging on on dan burke earlier and um, found an interview he did with um the athletic uh, scott agnes and I thought it was interesting. He said three-point shots allowed is actually not one of the statistics he cares most about. Like he cares more just about defensive field goal percentage over perhaps like shot profile, um, which seems trendy in the NBA. And the Sixers last year allowed the fewest three-point attempts in the NBA. Um, but perhaps Dan Burke um, will place less of an emphasis on that. And... Um, just try to construct a, a more holistic defense, if you will, a defense um, that isn't so focused on taking away the three-point shot from opponents. So, yeah, that, that's just a number I'm going to be tracking. I'm going to be curious about that. Um, yeah, and, and how Dan Burke uh, switches up this defense. It's certainly a super, super qualified coach. Uh, yeah, and he'll be taking over from uh, Ime Hudoka, Udoka rather, um, who was the defensive coordinator last year. And you know, one of his goals was was to increase the turnovers and increase the disruption, and and he did that to some extent. They went from twelve point seven to thirteen point eight turnovers forced. But I'm sure this I'm guessing, you know, the Sixers would love to increase that number even a little bit further to feed into this idea of playing fast, because obviously, you know, it's a lot easier to to play at a quick pace when you're forcing turnovers and you're allowing Ben Simmons to be his creative, you know, speedy self, as we've talked about. Yeah, it's interesting that you brought up that shot profile regarding, you know, three pointers allowed because. Some of the best defensive teams in the NBA last year, like the Celtics and the Raptors, they allowed a lot of uh, three-pointers, but yet they were still one of some of the best defensive teams. So it will be interesting to see if if uh, Burke can translate that to the Sixers' defense this year. Yeah. But uh, so before we get into the you know social media question of the week, I do want to bring up two 
uh, facts, you know, uh, tidbits of news that happened in the uh, Sixers sphere uh, earlier this afternoon that we're recording on Sunday, December the 6th, by the way. So um, first, the, the big news is that Mike Scott and Tyrese Maxey are not a part of training camp right now. They are quarantined because they both had a positive test for COVID. Uh, first reported, uh, the Maxi news was reported by Derek Bondner of The Athletic, and Keith Pompey reported Mike Scott's positive test. Neither player is expected to miss a long period of time, so we're assuming that their health is in good standings beyond the positive test. Um, and I, I wrote about this earlier today, about how Maxi can't afford to miss training camp due to the compressed season. But what are you guys' thoughts about Scott and Maxi losing training camp time in this condensed preseason? Well, well, for me with this, I mean, you hear about someone testing positive. It's it's bigger than basketball for me, and and mm-hmm. it's, it's it's not the same as a sprained ankle, you know. Um, but yeah, you know, I I I was told that those guys once they clear the NBA's protocols um, are expected to join the team. So that that's encouraging, and um, yeah, it, but it, it's it's a real challenge here. They're they're trying to play a, a season in home markets during a pandemic, and that is quite literally unprecedented. And we don't know if they're going to be able to pull it off. And um, it's risky. It's it's a risky proposition. They're more fortunate than the general population in the sense that they have access to daily testing. Um, but it's still going to be really difficult. And I'm sure that COVID-19 is going to be relevant all season, uh, most likely. You know, that, that just seems like the reality right now. As far as, yeah, as far as the missing training camp time, I would assume that that is um, more perhaps of a negative for Tyrese Maxey just because he's a rookie and will uh, be thrown into this system that he's never learned before and also won't have been running up and down with these guys and getting this high-level conditioning of, you know, Doc Rivers' practices. So I'm sure that'll be difficult um, for him um, from a basketball perspective. With Mike Scott, I wouldn't be too concerned on the basketball side anyway. Um He's a veteran guy. He's played for Doc Rivers before. He knows his role, which is to be tough, um, to be a a gritty bench player who's ready when his name is called and who makes three-point shots. So I think that will uh, remain the case for Mike Scott. Um, You know, maybe he won't have a chance to kind of stake a claim for for playing time the way he might have – if he'd been available from the very beginning of this trading camp, but I wouldn't imagine the impact for him in terms of basketball being huge. But with, yeah, whenever, whenever you hear of a positive test, I mean, the, the first off for me is, uh, is just the, the health and well being of these guys and the fact that they're, everyone's putting themselves at risk by, by trying to pull off this season. So We'll see how it goes. I don't. I don't think anyone can can really predict um, ex- exactly what the impact of COVID nineteen will be on this season, other than to say that it's going to be significant. You know. 
Yeah, I I agree. Again, like it's bigger than basketball. It, it's good to hear that they're both seemingly healthy and, and getting over it. That seems to be the case, which is positive. But yeah, on the basketball side, like you said, I think this is probably more severe for Maxi just in terms of he's a new player. As you said, he hasn't really played against NBA speed and physicality yet. And when you're a rookie, pretty much every minute of, of practice is, is important. And missing out on that this early is, is a definite negative. But if there is like a silver lining on the basketball front, it's that the whole team is adjusting to a new system. And there are other players who, who are also brand new to Philadelphia. So maybe maybe he isn't as far behind the curve as he might have been if it was still Brett Brown. But, you know, it, it, it's just really a health thing. And more broadly speaking, like you said, Noah, this season is definitely not – I'm not terribly optimistic as far as how it's going to go with COVID and teams trying to play on the road and stuff. It's just not a great setup. So – We'll we'll see what happens, but it's it's not ideal for sure. Of course, and of course, the the human element is first and foremost here. And we have the Sixers, and so nothing but the best and a speedy recovery for both uh, Maxi and Scott. And uh, while we we talk about basketball, we we certainly care about our players as human beings as well, and not just basketball players. Um. But yeah, no, I think obviously, and I wrote, I told you guys I wrote about this already this afternoon about how this is negatively impacting Maxi more than Scott. But um, Chris, you bring up an interesting point about how everybody's going to be behind the curve here, so it might not be as 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 negative for Maxi as it would be normally under normal circumstances. But with Maxi getting, uh, you know, having a positive COVID test, I guess we can say the Sixers rookie curse has continued. Uh, skipped Matisse, but it looks like it, it came back for 2020, which. But hopefully this is the only thing that happens to Maxi. And, uh, you know, he has a speedy recovery from this, of course. And then, um, you know, we can continue the season, but. To, to change gears, I want to uh, just briefly mention that the Sixers signed Justin Robinson to a, a Exhibit 10 contract for training camp. That means the Sixers training camp roster is full at 20. Uh, it should be noted, and I believe it was Derek Bodner of The Athletic that brought this up, that the Sixers will have to make a, you know, wave somebody in order to make the Al Horford for Danny Green and Terrence Ferguson deal official because due to um, due to the fact that the Sixers don't have enough roster spots now. But sure, that will happen when it's time, which I believe it is uh, December the eighth is when that deal can become official. But any thoughts about Justin Robinson, guys? Six foot one point guard, known for his three point shooting, played for the Blue Coats half of last season after being traded from the. Go City Capital team. Yeah, I saw I saw a little bit of him uh, in the G League. Yeah, with the Blue Coats. My thinking there is is probably uh, Blue Coats head coach Connor Johnson likes the idea of having someone who knows the way he likes to play, um, and and that that would be beneficial. And of course, we've seen throughout this off season that. Folks who can shoot are right up, right up Daryl Morey's alley, but yeah, we still don't have clarity yet on what the G League season is going to look like or 
definitively whether the blue coats are going to participate. You know, there there have been reports that the G League is looking into this Atlanta area bubble, which I believe would be like 12 games and then a playoff tournament. So we we shall see if the Blue Coats participate in that. Uh, I would imagine this year that, especially because that they're playing during a pandemic, two way players might see some more NBA time. So the Sixers two-way guys are Dakota Mathias and Paul Reed, the rookie. Uh, so yeah, they're, they're limited right now to 50 games as opposed to the typical 45 days of service time. But like, it wouldn't be shocking if those guys, instead of spending most of their time in Delaware, are spending most of it in Philadelphia. And should circumstances related to COVID... Uh, necessitate it like playing NBA minutes so that's something to track as this very unusual season gets underway like those those fringe guys who would normally just be spending most of their time in the G League could actually play important NBA minutes I think yeah I think that's a good point Noah and like you said Daryl Morey tends to value shooters. The Sixers roster especially is, is built to value shooters, and they don't have many point guards. They don't have many shooters still, so Robinson is obviously makes sense in that regard, but it is an Exhibit 10 deal, so just like Derek Walton and Lamine Diani, I, I, I think he's probably just... This is basically just to get him back in Delaware. Uh, however that season looks, you know, we, we don't know yet, but I don't think this has a particularly strong impact on the, the NBA level Sixers. Yes. Lamine Janae on the name there, which, which took me uh, some to figure out. No worries. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Janae, um, super productive um, in college, 23 years old, uh, rangy forward. So yeah, a, an interesting project, but yeah, as you said, a guy that will, in all likelihood, not be playing for the Sixers this season. Yep, for sure. And, you know, we'll see what is interesting. I talked about the Sixers needing to bulk up their point guard depth, but they add one-dimensional point guards like Derek Walton and, you know, Justin Robinson, you know, pure just three-point shooters, guys that can spot up next to Ben. So that's going to be interesting how that works out. But, you know, that's – we'll see what happens in – terms of you know how they're going to you know with the g league and everything but i think it's time for our social media question of the week uh uriah so the social media question of the week was more of a challenge for all of the fans of the sixer sense and the question or the challenge had to do with ranking these sixers defensively and the options were we have dwight howard matisse steibel joel Embiid, and ben simmons We'll start with Facebook. There's a, a follower of the Sixer Sense. His name is Jesse Eastman. He put in ranking, he put Ben first, Thibel second, Dwight Howard third, and surprisingly, Joel Embiid fourth. But he elaborated and said, Ben can guard practically all five positions, speed and strength. Thibel can guard one through three well and small fours and has an eye for the ball like never before. Howard can guard all fours and fives and is the active league leader in career blocks. Joel's a great defender also, but he's more limited than the other three. And he said the disrespect for Howard is getting cray. Now, let's go to Twitter real quick. And the 
most popular response was from another Sixer fan website on Twitter. It's at True Sixer Fans. And whoever the administrator of this of this account said, I think I have to go Simmons and B, Howard and then Thibel. But Thibel should surpass Howard this year. So we'll go to Noah and then Chris and then Lucas. Noah, how would you rank those Sixers defensively, one through four? Yeah, my ranking would be Simmons, Embiid, uh, Thibel, Howard. And I think it's, for me, it would be a, close to a toss-up with Simmons and Embiid. But I I think it's more than fair to to rank Ben Simmons first, a guy who was a all-defensive first-team candidate, or first-team selection, rather, last year, led the league in steals. You know, hard not to rank him first. Uh, Joel Embiid, the Sixers have consistently been a much, much better team defensively when he's on the floor and off it. He's amassed a pretty impressive track record there. And I, I think um, he's one of the best rim protectors in the game. So for me, he's a, he's a pretty solid second selection. Matisse Thibel, I would give a slight edge over Howard um, just because we saw last year that there are just like special defensive tools there. He anticipates plays. He cleans up mistakes in ways that are just abnormal and freakish. Um, He doesn't have to read the play precisely um, or, you know, get every single fundamental right uh, to make like this massive impact. So, yeah, I would give Matisse Thibel a a slight edge over Howard with, you know, um, respect for Dwight Howard for the awesome defensive player he was in his prime. Um, and, you know, he's he still was a, a productive player in the minutes um, that he played last year for the Lakers. Um, but I would, unfortunately, for, for him, rank him fourth uh, on that particular list. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's it's pretty much the same. I, I, I might lean Joel, but it really just, it's situational almost. Like you said, Noah, Joel has, has really been the glue that has held together a pretty shaky defense pretty much his entire career and like you said the Sixers have been prone to just falling completely apart when he's off the floor maybe Dwight will help that a bit but I, I don't think we we can overstate just how important a beat for protection has been to this team and then with Ben he's, he, he might be the most versatile defender in the league like he can genuinely guard one through five he spends time guarding all five positions consistently and like in terms of creating turnovers, being a disruptor, he's at the, towards the top of the league in that department. He, he's, he's just a tremendous talent. It, it's really 1A, 1B, a bit of a toss-up, as you said. And then I, I'd put Thibel 3 and Howard 4. Obviously, in, in his prime, I, I think Howard versus Embiid would be a, a discussion, and Howard might have the edge then, but he's 35, 36 now, I believe, and he, he's just not on that level anymore. He'll still block some shots. He'll still protect the rim at a decent rate, but uh, I, I think he's number four in, in this scenario. Howard will be okay. turning 35 years old in two days, so he's not 35 right. yet. But yes, he is cool. He is not the guy he was in his prime, absolutely. So for me, I'm going to go with Joel being number one because Ben Simmons is the most versatile defender, one of the best pickup pockets in the NBA. This is true, but he is far from a complete defender. Uh, his shot blocking at six foot ten, he's never averaged over one block a game. Which, granted, part of that has to do with him guarding perimeter players, but 
at six foot ten, he needs to average at least one block a game in order for him to have a chance to win Defensive Player of the Year, in my opinion. At that size, he needs to be more complete, a complete defender, if he's guarding on the perimeter and being, he has to be equally as you know disruptive inside the paint too. Uh, so my 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 vote is going for Joel, and the reason being is that, and this is going to seem a little arbitrary, but Joel finished second in Defensive Player of the Year voting twice. Ben finished fourth once. I, I granted Joel didn't wasn't fully engaged defensively last year, but overall we've seen in his career how dominant he can be on that end. Arguably, he could have been defensive player of the year both of the years that Rudy Gobert won it. So that's why I have Joel number one. It's that that simple. Ben Simmons might be the most versatile defender, but he's definitely not the most complete defender. Joel can can do a little bit of both. Can do both at a pretty good level um that being said number three is tricky for me because like you guys said dwight's career you know he's been one of the best defenders in the game but at this point in his career he's probably a second tier defender at the center position which certainly is not bad but he's not you know he's there's a reason why he's not starting at this point at 35 so we have to remember that uh but it's a lot closer between Matisse being number three and Howard being number four, because, and I think this Matisse will make a little bit more separation this year, but while he is a great pickpocket, his on-ball defending still needs some work, and his decision-making when the gamble still needs some work too. But, you know, a head coach like Doc Rivers will certainly help develop that for sure, and so will uh, assistant coach Dane Burke. So I think that we'll see a big jump from but I think the gap between him and Ben is huge, and I, but I don't think the gap between him and Howard is huge. There's a reason why Howard was brought in to anchor this team's second unit, and I think he'll do a great job at that. Thanks again, Noah, for, for coming on the podcast. We, we really do appreciate it. And if you just want to tell folks where they can follow you on social media and where they can read your work, you know, take it away. Yeah, thanks. Thanks to you guys again for having me on. You can follow me on Twitter at, at Noah Levick, so just my name, and you can read my work at NBCSportsPhiladelphia.com. All right. Uh, we suggest, obviously, that everyone do that. Noah does some tremendous reporting work, tremendous feature stuff. We, we do really highly recommend that you check out his writing and follow him on Twitter. Just as always, thanks to all the listeners. We really do appreciate you giving us the time of week to talk Sixers basketball. I know there's a lot going on in the world right now, so it really does mean the world to us. And wherever you're listening, if you're on Google Play, iTunes, leave a rating, leave a review if you can. It would really help us out. We'd appreciate it greatly. And we should be back next week and the weeks afterwards with some pretty exciting guests. So we're looking forward to that. And tune in. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.